welcome to The Duck Stops Here, a podcast featuring alumni from the University of Oregon. My name is Michelle Joyce Fife, and I'll be your host for today. I work with alumni in Southern California, which is how I met today's guest. I'm recording this podcast in quarantine here in my home in Eugene, Oregon, and had the following conversation using Zoom. Uh, it wasn't until I was in high school taking a history class and the teacher was talking about World War II and the camps and all these things that were going on. And I obviously knew that we were Jewish and I obviously knew that my parents were in Europe during the war, but they'd never spoken about the Holocaust or having been survivors or they hadn't really revealed any of that. And I literally put two and two together. I'm maybe 15 years old and I go, well, wait a second. They were Jewish and they were in Hungary during these years. I have to ask them about this. That was Rob Eigner, the son of two Holocaust survivors and a 1986 graduate with a Bachelor of Science in Journalism. Rob is here to talk to us about his parents, his eight years at Rolling Stone magazine, his career as an elite alpine skier, and his current life working in Beverly Hills real estate and raising two teenage sons. Hey, Rob, welcome to our podcast. Hey, I'm excited. Go Ducks. How's it going? <laughs> Go Ducks. We are really happy to have you, Rob. And we're very fortunate that you've been so connected with the university over the last few years, both coming to events in Los Angeles and then most recently speaking at one of our virtual events with your parents about their experience surviving the Holocaust. Can you tell us a little about that? Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, first of all, the, the university just does a great job of, uh, of engagement. There's been some fun networking events and, and interesting, you know, entertainment related uh, speakers and different things that I've, I've engaged in down here in Los Angeles. But in terms of my, my family history, my, my parents are both Holocaust survivors. Um, uh, my dad was a survivor of multiple camps um, in Poland and Germany. And my mom was a survivor of the Budapest ghetto. And uh, it's a long story, but the short end of it is that in the 80s, they began to publicly speak and tell their history to schools and churches and synagogues. And as I became a young man, I became quite interested in the impact, not only that their history had on me, but also on the you know Jewish people as a whole. And Rob, when you were growing up, you weren't even aware that your parents had this experience. You found out as a teenager. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, it's, I wouldn't say it's embarrassing, but it's all. It kind of shows you, like, it, it took me a while to put two and two together. Uh, it wasn't until I was in high school taking a history class, and the teacher was talking about World War II and the camps and all these things that were going on. And I obviously knew that we were Jewish and I obviously knew that my parents were in Europe during the war, but they'd never spoken about the Holocaust or having been survivors or they hadn't really revealed any of that. And I literally put two and two together. I'm maybe 15 years old and I go, well, wait a second, they were Jewish and they were in Hungary during these years. I have to ask them about this. And, and that's when they sort of revealed that yes, they were, they were impacted by that. And it was, you know, a jarring thing to learn about your parents, particularly jarring because they were very unaffected or they seemed very unaffected. They didn't seem like someone who was emotionally, psychologically scarred from what would be a understandable event that would scar you. And, and they, they seemed so kind of normal that it really surprised me that they'd been through all that. 
your dad was at Auschwitz when the Americans liberated it and your mother escaped a firing squad because her mother bribed a soldier with her wedding ring. Actually, uh, Michelle, my father was liberated from Dachau uh, in Germany. He was transferred from Auschwitz to Dachau where he was ultimately liberated by the American army. I had the pleasure of meeting your parents recently and well via Zoom at least and they are the most positive optimistic people and it's absolutely incredible because a experience like that could just very well be crushing. Yeah, interestingly I um uh, it's a great point that you make because I I went to graduate school at NYU for psychology and I did my thesis paper on the impact of being a child of a survivor. And um, that's one of the things that really amazes me about my parents is that, you know, a lot of people understandably, again, there's no judgment in this, you know, they carry serious psychological issues around having gone through anything like that. It doesn't have to be the Holocaust. It could be Vietnam. It could be any number of things, but you know, typically Holocaust survivors have significant food issues and scarcity issues and fear of authority and these various understandable factors that certainly my parents are affected by, but they've really chosen a more positive outlook and path in their life. So uh, I'm super grateful for that. Yeah, they were so friendly and giggly. We were doing a virtual event about their experience surviving the Holocaust. And before the event started, we were kind of in the, the backstage area or whatever. And just giggling and having such a great time. And we had to sort of bring it down to start the event because it was such a serious subject. Yeah, they are definitely uh, uh, glass half full people for sure. Yeah, they're very inspirational. And you are very much a go-getter and um, master of your own destiny. And I very much can see a straight line from where that came from. Wow, I, I, I like that, I've mastered my own <laughs> destiny. That sounds good, I'm using that. <laughs> <laughs> we can make some business cards up for you. <laughs> there you go, Rob Eigner, master of destiny. <laughs> Um, so they emigrated from Europe to Portland, which is how you ended up uh, in Oregon and, um, of course, coming to the University of Oregon. Correct. Yeah, it was a, a sort of a unusual or unexpected route. They, uh, like many immigrants during that time, they came through one of the immigration camps. I believe it was called Camp Kilmer, which is in New Jersey. And they, they had family. We have family in upstate New York. So they were looking to find that family. And that's probably where they would have ended up settling. But as you can imagine, in the uh, 1950s, there were no cell phones, etc. So it wasn't that easy to connect with people, especially when you don't know how to navigate, you know, um, just the systems. So they did not connect with that family that was in um, upstate uh, New York. And the only other family my dad had was a stepbrother who had been stationed in Portland, Oregon with the U.S. Navy after he had escaped from Europe right after the war in 1945 or 1946. And so they're like, well, let's get on a train and go to wherever this Portland, Oregon place is. And they took a train across country and that's how they ended up there. Was Portland a welcoming community for them? I think overall it was. Uh, they, they didn't really uh, mention or have never really mentioned overt um, anti-Semitism or anything like that. But certainly as immigrants uh, with a language barrier, 
they were different. You know, I mean, particularly in the in the fifties, Portland was a pretty homogeneous community. You know, pretty you know white American-born community. So they stood out, and there was definitely some challenges uh, uh, integrating. Uh, and they did, I would say, in the early years, most of their close friends were also Hungarian or German or Austrian immigrants. That's just sort of who they surrounded themselves with at the beginning. Um, but they did a good job, my parents, of learning English right away. My mom started a business, a beauty salon, uh, fairly early on. Um, so they, you know, they 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 chose to be Americans first. Definitely, and I suppose that if you have come from the Holocaust, maybe some of the racism and anti-Semitism wouldn't register quite as much as it would otherwise. Yeah, I think I think that's true. So you ended up going to the University of Oregon in the 80s. What was that like? <laughs> uh, well, it was in that sort of uh, uh, post Animal House years, you know, when that movie was uh, made, you know, the movie, I think that movie was made in the 70s and I was there in 82 is when I started. I mean, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, it was, I have to be honest, it was not the path I expected for myself. I mean, just a, a quick aside, I graduated high school I was a ski racer, pretty high level ski alpine ski racer. And so I went up to Wenatchee, Washington to go to the Mission Ridge Ski Academy. And uh, my goal was not to go to college or it wasn't in my mind to go to college. I wanted to go to the Olympics. And um, I got pretty significantly injured, had multiple knee surgeries um, in a bad crash. And, and then I had to kind of rethink my whole life because uh, I was really on a professional ski path. I was already getting sponsored by um, Elon skis. And I was going to go, um, you know, after skiing, I was going to go work for Elon as like a distributor or whatever. So when I got hurt, I went to Portland state for a semester and I was like, well, you know, I guess Oregon's, you know, I want to study, decided I wanted to study journalism. So I just ended up at university of Oregon. But once I got there, I mean, it was a life changing event. You know, there was people from all over the country, all over the world, I ended up joining a fraternity, which was another thing I didn't anticipate doing. Uh, and I was pretty involved. I, I wrote for the school paper. I, I wrote for the Emerald and I sold for the Observer, which was a competing uh, student run newspaper. I sold advertising and, um, you know, I was involved with my fraternity. I was a, a an officer and, um, and I just had a great time. I really grew a lot as a person. I really grew a lot. That would have been a pretty big switch. Uh, I mean, you had several skiing championship titles and it probably would have been quite an adjustment, but then it makes me think about your upbringing and your parents' story and how it was time to pivot and you just did it. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I appreciate you saying that. And I, it, it maybe looked that way on the outside. On the inside, it was, you know, it was a really difficult emotional thing to kind of give up that identity as an athlete and the goals associated with that and be like, okay, now I'm going to be a, a student. And it just wasn't, it just wasn't part of my plan at the time, no regrets at all, but it was a, it was difficult internally. Um, but you know, the university was great. The journalism school was great. I had great advisors. In fact, my first job in New York city in the advertising business was literally a connection I had made through my advisor at Oregon. So the, the university really set me up for success. It just, um, you know, again, it just wasn't the path I predetermined for myself. Well, and that job was, was that the one at Rolling Stone magazine? 
No, my first job was at DMBNB, which was a big, uh, like top 10 advertising agency in the world. They handled like Procter and Gamble and General Foods. I was a media planner. And then I became an account executive at a different ad agency working on Subaru automobiles, which was kind of fun because Subaru at the time was the sponsor of the US ski team. So there was kind of like this connection back to my roots. And then, then I ended up getting a job um, in advertising sales first at Town & Country Magazine, and then finally at Rolling Stone, where I spent eight years. My high school self is bowing down to you right now. <laughs> that is the height of coolness there. Um, what was it like to be on the inside? Was it just another job, or was it all rock and roll, as I'm imagining? Well, it was, It was. It, honestly, it was a little bit of both. So the, the rock and roll part was, you know, Jan Wenner, who's the founder and owner of Rolling Stone, very cool guy. I had some really interesting experiences with him. Probably the coolest one was that he too is a ski enthusiast. Skiing keeps coming up here, it's funny. And um, and he had a private plane, uh, uh, which I had never been on a private plane. And somehow or another, he came by my office one day and he saw I had like a poster of a of me skiing or a picture of me skiing on my, on my desk. And he said, oh, are you a skier? And we started talking and he's like, oh, well, you should come skiing with me sometime. And I'm like, yeah, sure, Jan fuel up the jet and just take me skiing. Like I was just being a smart aleck. And, um, and sh like two weeks later, his assistant was like, Mr. Winter would like to know if your availability on this weekend. I'm like, why, what's going on? And long story short, I got to fly to Sun Valley on a private plane with Jan Winter, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and one of the guys from Hall and Oates, I don't remember which one, <laughs> the dark haired one, whichever that is, Hall, we'll just go with Hall. And uh, anyway, anyway um, so that was just like an awesome experience. And then there was tons of concerts I got to go to for free that was a you know, part of like entertaining my clients. So that was the rock and roll part. That was the cool part, great parties, et cetera. The, 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 the truth of it is it was really a much more, much more boring job than you would expect. I mean, selling advertising is selling advertising. So whether you're selling for Rolling Stone or you're selling for, you know, uh, some trade journal, you still have to go into an advertising media planner and show them demographic information and show them why they're going to reach their audience efficiently. So the job part's pretty nondescript, but the, the, the benefits were great. Did Arnold Schwarzenegger eat your dust on the slopes? Oh, I killed him. <laughs> I was actually gave it. I actually gave him a ski lesson. Jan was good. Jan was a good skier, but uh, but the 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 Holland Oates guy and 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 Schwarzenegger were not good. The other guy that was there was um, Don Simpson uh, from Simpson Bruckenheimer, who is now since deceased, unfortunately. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd say Jan was the best skier next to me. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> any other any other rock and roll party stories you care to uh, share? Well, I'd, I'd say the uh, I won't mention a name because I don't want to get uh, I don't want to get you or me in, in in trouble for you know some sort of slanderous comment. But I'll just say that I got to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame dinners, induction dinners, and uh, there was a a very well known musician. I'll just leave it at that. Who, when introduced to me by Jan. Um, refused to look me in the eye and refused to shake my hand because apparently, you know, since I wasn't an artist, I'm using air quotes for people who can't see me. Since I wasn't an artist, I guess I wasn't worthy of his, uh, his, you know, glance or handshake. So that was, Did that uh, person ever come on your car radio. 
and keep you upset. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. <laughs> That's awesome. You're not living the rock and roll life um, these days. Well, no one is. Um, hopefully, stay home people. Um, <laughs> exactly. Now you're in real estate, and you're you also have a consulting business with and and the podcast, of course, as well. And two teenage and two teenage kids. Let's not forget that. Um, so yeah. So my uh, when I. Um, Transitioned out of the advertising and marketing world. Um, in between that, I, I did. I came down to LA to become an actor, which I did. And during that time as an actor, which was about a five-year span, um, I got into real estate. I got my real estate license because a fellow actor um, was like, "Hey, I made fifty grand today." And I'm like, "Wait a second! Did you book a TV show? Did you book a commercial? What happened?" No, I sold a house. I'm like, "Oh, that's." <laughs> that's a good idea. Houses are pretty expensive in LA and you know, I could do that on the side. Wait, I have to, I have to back up for a sec. Is there like some secret peanut butter commercial somewhere that you appear in? <laughs> peanut butter. Um, God, I, uh, the commercials I did, uh, I did one for a Canadian beer. I did one for McDonald's. I did one for Toyota. I, I haven't even, I mean, I probably have them on a VHS somewhere, but I, I'm sure they're hard to find. I did some TV shows and some movies and lots of independent film and whatnot, but uh, I'm not that easy to find anymore because it's been so long since I was active, but I think I'm still on IMDB or whatever it's called. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I met this fellow actor who was making money on the side in real estate. And I was like, that's a good idea. I'll go get my real estate license. And I had so much success in my first year as an agent that I, I kind of went full time, started a family, was an agent for about three or four years. I was working at Keller Williams Real Estate, which is the largest real estate brokerage now in the country. Back then it wasn't. And after about three years, they tapped me to be a manager of an office. So I managed for about 11 years. And during those 11 years of managing offices, I was the manager of the Beverly Hills office. Ultimately, I started investing and buying offices as well. It's a franchise. So now I'm an investor owner of multiple franchises. And, uh, and then I'm a consultant, meaning Keller Williams has its own internal coaching program. It's called MAPS. And I'm a certified MAPS consultant. So I basically coach other owner operators on how to efficiently run their business. So I have about 15 coaching clients and then I run my businesses and do my podcasts and raise my children. <laughs> I know that your podcast is indirectly inspired by your parents' story, Surviving the Holocaust, because you interview people who have been through extraordinary experiences undergone extreme hardship and come out the other side. Can you tell us more? So about 10 years ago, I started uh, telling my parents' history on their behalf, partially because I'm in Los Angeles and they're in Portland, but also partially because as they're getting older, my dad's 91 and my mom's in her 80s, it was becoming harder and harder for them to continue to tell their history. And I felt it was so important to do so that uh, I started basically duplicating their telling of their history at churches and synagogues and, and places of business, et cetera. And I've had the opportunity to speak to quite a large audience. It was also the impetus for my own podcast, which is called Clear Choices. And I originally created that podcast to kind of accentuate people who've gone through difficult things like my parents 
and talk about the choices they've made to kind of come out the other side of those difficult experiences stronger. And so my parents were my first two guests on that. Now I've had multiple guests who've gone through many challenging things unrelated to the Holocaust, but they were sort of the inspiration for that. Yeah, I love your podcast. I'd also be curious to hear you talk a little about the real estate market. What are the conversations that industry insiders are having at this time? And can you speculate where the housing market's going from here? Uh, I Right now, I mean, look, it's so hard to predict these things, but right now, honest to gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised that going into this pandemic, we were panicked, us in the industry. We were cutting expenses, um, you know, negotiating with our landlords, just doing everything we could to prepare for the de- eventual decline of the business. And that still could come. I mean, post-election, who knows? But right now, um, Ju- June, July, and August have been amongst our best months in decades. Um, we're really doing well. Prices are escalating, multiple offers. Our offices are profitable. So we're in a really good position right now. We're definitely more prepared for a potential down downturn. I think the election will be the next fl- inflection point for that. Uh, but it's hard to predict. There's just too many unknowns. Well, one of the things I, uh, I mean, I, I always like to refer to Warren Buffett, who's, you know, far smarter and wealthier than many of us, most of us. Uh, and he always just says, you know, you can't time the market, mm-hmm. he, you know, and, and I think that's the case uh, still. It's like, you know, might there be a downturn? Absolutely. If, if you're an investor or looking for a new home or a second home, you know, is it smart to sit on the sidelines with cash? Yeah, not a bad idea. And... Uh, at the same time, given the importance that the home has right now in our world where we are more limited to our homes, now now might be a good time to invest in your home too. I mean, I think people are, the reason the markets are so hot is interest rates are low and people are finding, like I'll give you an example, foreign travel is non-existent right now. Um, so wealthy people who would normally go, Hey, I'm going to go to Europe. I'm going to go to Asia. I'm going to go here and there. They're like, I'm going to buy a second home in Santa Barbara. I'm going to buy a second home in Palm Springs because that's, that's what we can do for vacationing right now. So I think you're going to see that sort of expansion and, um, increased importance placed on the home and, and in real estate as an investment vehicle uh, until this pandemic is completely under control. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it like that, but yeah, of course your vacation spot is your home. (laughs) It's just another room. (laughs) Exactly. So, so yeah, so people are investing in their homes. If they're not buying new homes, they're investing in their home, making the garden nicer, adding a hot tub, adding an outdoor shower, just doing things to make the home more livable. No outdoor showers here in Oregon, I'm afraid. (laughs) I have one. I love it. (laughs) Well, when the pandemic is over, Rob, I definitely am going to come down and see you in LA. We have all kinds of networking events and social events that we want to do down there, but um, obviously everything is moved to online for now, but uh, I hope to see you in person real soon. Well, I, I agree, and I, I wish the same, and I will say you've done a great job. I've listened to a number of the various alumni type of programs you guys have put on, and there have been some really interesting speakers and interesting things to tap into. So I think you guys are doing a great job of keeping people connected. 
Oh, well, thank you for saying so. We have had a lot of interest from alumni in your area, Los Angeles, and really all over the place, really wanting to network in this time. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I, I'm always looking for what you guys are bringing to the table. Well, thank you so much for your time, Rob. It's my pleasure. Honored to be here. Uh, and uh, go Ducks. What can I say? <laughs> go Ducks. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And just a reminder that you can find out more about Rob and about our virtual events in the podcast description. Want to get a message to today's guest? Do you know a duck that you'd like to nominate for our podcast? Want to give a shout out to your fellow ducks? Click the link below to leave us a voicemail that we can play during our next podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Duck Stops Here. Thank you.